Well, it's over this past month that uh, Pastor Richard has been helping us to think about some sayings that people might want to attribute to Jesus, but it's not really what he said. And uh, we get to continue on that theme today. Today I want to look at another one of those sayings, and it's this, you get what you deserve. How often do you hear that? So, aren't, uh, and maybe you'd say, are these words found in the pages of Scripture and coming from the lips of Jesus himself? I think you've heard the saying before. Maybe you can fill it in with me. I'm going to start it and see if you can finish it. What goes around comes around. Okay, your past will come back to, okay, you made your bed, now, okay, there were variations of it, sleep in it or lie in it, but, but really, all three of those sayings really have the same idea. You get what you deserve. What you have done is going to be done back to you. It, it's so common that we hear those sayings all the time. You get what you deserve. And they're all reminders that you have to pay for the wrong things that you have done. And maybe the flip side is also true. You're going to be rewarded for the good things that you have done. So let's give some illustrations. Students, you're working really hard on a school project. You, you pour a lot of energy into it, and your teacher gives you a good grade. And then after that, you say, wow, you get what you deserve. Or um, each week, you train to do more push-ups. You train, you grunt, you groan, you press yourself to do more, and then with each week, you begin to actually notice that you can do more. Well, after all, you get what you deserve, right? Or how about this? You drive too fast in the wrong place, and the new photo radar system in Mississauga takes a very nice picture of you and sends it to your house with a speeding ticket and a fine. And then you say, well, you get what you deserve. Or how about this? You've had a really bad day. You're miserable to your work colleagues, or maybe to your family, or maybe to your cat, and they don't really like that. And maybe now they treat you unkindly too. Well, you get what you deserve. Now, is that how this world works? I hope that you're feeling a little puzzled right now to say, is that really how it works? And I, I wonder if you're wrestling with a yes or a no to answer those questions, or, or maybe you're saying, well, it's both yes and no. That's, that's how it works. Um, now, I want to go one step further, though. Think about what the Bible says. Um, think of Jeremiah 17.10, where we hear God saying this. This is God speaking, and he says this, 
I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Well, it sounds here like you get what you deserve, right? That's what God's saying here. Or even when we get to the New Testament, maybe some of us might say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's all Old Testament stuff. You get what you deserve. But the New Testament also says that as well, or, or something similar. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Or, or maybe I'd put it like this. You just can't fool God. You're going to get what you put into it. Is, that's what God's saying. Paul is using here a gardening illustration. If you plant good seeds in your garden, a beautiful garden will grow. In other words, you get what you deserve, right? Really? The Apostle Paul reminds us of a principle And this principle is very true. There are consequences to our actions. Maybe we put it like that, to say there are very real consequences to the way that we live. And it's true. We reap what we sow. It's a biblical idea. But what I want to say is this. This is not the whole story. If we say that one sentence you get what you deserve and neglect how Jesus enters into this world of real consequences, we are missing out on the heart of the good news. I cannot think of a Bible story that turns you get what you deserve upside down more than Matthew 20, the text that Roz just read to us a few moments ago the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And so if you have your Bibles handy or your devices handy, you might want to open them up to look at Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And just as Roz read the story to us, now you know the basic story, but um, what I want to do is just highlight a few parts of the story as we think about this. Okay. Now, for me, growing up in the Niagara region, one of my seasonal jobs was on a farm. My uncle and my cousins were ready to risk it on this teenage city boy from Niagara Falls with a job on the farm. Among other responsibilities, one of my tasks was tending to the vineyard. Even in the springtime, long before the harvest came, we had to tie the branches to the wire, uh, tie branches to the wires that went across so that the fruit would truly be supported. That was such an an important background job to get prepared for the harvest that was going to come. Then also the young grape vines had to be pruned so that we could prepare for a good harvest. You wouldn't just let every branch grow. You had to trim off certain branches as well. There was much pruning that needed to be done as well. Let me say this. 
I never became a master farmer, but I knew what it was like to work in the vineyard. So in verse 1, you read or you look at the story, the landowner went out early in the morning to hire workers in the vineyard. And the people that he hires are simply called workers. That word worker is the same word used in Matthew 9, 38, where Jesus tells his disciples, the workers are few. And then he says, I want you to pray this prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into the harvest. Here we are taught in Matthew 9 to pray for workers exactly what is happening in this story, the seeking out and the looking for workers that the landowner is doing. By the way, let me say this. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, is by definition a worker. A worker who doesn't deserve the job, but it's given to us. A disciple is somebody who says, yes, I am ready, Lord, to go work in your vineyard. It's that readiness to work. So by definition, a disciple is also a worker. Now, in verse 2, the landowner negotiates the wages up front. Did you notice that? Right at the beginning of the day, a denarius was an agreed-on wage for a day of work. William Barclay says it's a generous day's wage, but whatever it is, it's a good pay for a good day of work. But in any case, I want you to notice that the landowner and the workers agree right up front. Here's the pay that I'm ready to give to you. Here's what I'm ready to offer you. It's one denarius. Will you go out? And the workers all said, we're in. We're good to go, and off we go to work. Having read the story already, you know that there are some strange twists to this story. The landowner now keeps going out to the marketplace at various points in the day and looks for more workers. Every time the landowner looks for workers, he finds a few more. He's thrilled. Every time he goes out looking for more workers or if we'd say it, disciples, the landowner is thrilled and puts them to work as well. Notice what happens, though, if you, if you see it in verse 3. It's also repeated in the story. The workers are standing around. What are they doing? They are doing nothing. Um, they have no purpose. Uh, it's mentioned two times in the story, Matthew 20, verse 3. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw other workers standing in the marketplace and that operative phrase, doing nothing. The message, uh, the translation says, these were unemployed people. Um, the King James Version says, these people were idle um, it doesn't describe them as, oh, before they were hired, they were sitting by the pool and just really relaxing and having a great time, or, or that they were really enjoying doing their hobbies. The description was they had no purpose. They had no motivation. It was, there was no guiding value in what they were doing and how they were acting in life. 
And it gives us the picture of these people without work longing for something meaningful to do. Some commentators suggest that the different times of the day that people are hired, they suggest that it represents the different ages that people are as they come to faith. So early in the day, it's the children or it's the young people that are coming to faith so that they can be working the whole day. And then, um, and then for those who came to faith, uh, maybe in midlife, they were the people hired in the middle of the day or people who were elderly and old, they were the ones hired at the end of the day. You can play with that and maybe there's some merit to thinking of it that way, but I, 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 maybe there's something more. Some workers are hired at the 11th hour, or, or in another translation, if it's the workday ends at 6 o'clock, um, they were hired at 5 o'clock. They were hired just right towards the end of the day. Actually, we're at so close to quitting time that it seems hardly worthwhile to send them out to work. But in his longing, the landowner's longing, Uh, to gather up more workers, this strange landowner seems to me more focused on getting workers than even the work itself. Because he's thrilled. Even to get a worker at 5 o'clock, I mean, imagine the training, getting them outfitted and ready to go. How much work are they going to do before quitting time? But the landowner is thrilled to get them and send them off into the vineyard as well. But then next comes another interesting part of the story. It's the payment at the end of the day. Now this word pay or payment is related to the same word of payment or judgment. Uh, in Matthew sixteen twenty-seven, where Jesus says that he will reward or repay each person for what they have done at the end of the day. But notice in this parable of the workers in the vineyard, the repayment does not line up with what we might expect in a world of you get what you deserve. Those who were hired late in the day were only told in, notice verse 4, Matthew 24, uh, 20 verse 4, where the landowner says, I will pay you whatever is right. So the people hired later in the day, there's no comment about the exact payment that's going to be given. It's just going to, I'm going to pay you whatever is right. What, what, I think what we understand is a picture like this. Jesus is going to be fair. Literally, Jesus is saying, I will pay you with justice. But in the end, what they receive is amazing grace. The God who is just, the God who is fair, gives grace. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Maybe it's a Sunday school verse that you learned when you were a kid. If you were around Sunday school, for the wages of sin is death. If the, that Bible verse stopped right there, I guess we would just say, well, I guess that's the kind of world that we live in. We're just stuck 
in a world of you get what you deserve. That's the final word. But Paul's thinking climaxes with this truth. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am drawn to this verse, and here's why. Paul, in his thinking, is trying to work out the tension, the tension maybe that I was reflecting on earlier with you, the tension of living in a you-get-what-you-deserve world and the grace of God all in one short sentence. And in this parable, now going back to the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the big surprise is, at the end of the day, the late arrivals get every bit as much. Grace isn't the kind of thing that one person gets a lot of, and another person just gets just a little bit of grace. That, that's not how it works. What we receive from Christ at the end of the day is never a wage. It is always a gift. Well, we have taken a little bit of time to reflect on Matthew chapter 20. I hope that maybe you're just exploring a few more ideas that you haven't pondered as much just recently as you think on the story. But now I want to come back to this question of How does this story help us to make sense of the saying, you get what you deserve? So come with me. I want to make four observations as I think about this story. Okay, first one is this. The gift of work is more than we deserve. Do we think of work as a gift Sometimes we might like to define work as this. The tasks that we have to do in order to get the money that we want to do the things that we want to do. But I don't think that's how work is pictured in this story. One of the very first things that God does in the Garden of Eden is to give human beings meaningful work and to be a partner in the creative work of God. Your work can be challenging, but it can still be a gift. Now, I didn't tell you about my very first farming job totally, because my first job on the farm was not just to work in the beautiful vineyard. We had many acres with grapes. Um, We also had 2,000 pigs, Tending to these animals was also a part of my responsibility. Now, not all of it was pretty, let me tell you. As an 18-year-old, I remember trying to get ready for a date. Thankfully, this was before I met Sheila. She might not have wanted to go with me again. I remember after my day of work, I showered at work at work before leaving the pig farm. They had showers right on site because they knew, uh, you know, how much you might smell after leaving the place. I showered dutifully. I had a date that night. I got home. 
I thought, I better wash up again. I got into the shower one more time, scrubbed up again, thought, I'm ready for this now. I came downstairs, and when I literally asked my kind and caring mother how I smelled, she told me, get back into the shower one more time. Yeah, my dating life was never very successful in that season of my life. Here I'd like to give a fuller definition of work. What if we define work as all of the efforts that we exert, paid and unpaid, to make the world a better place? Whether you are a student, whether you are in transition between jobs, whether you are retired, whether you are fully engaged in your employment, you are called by God. You are called to work in God's kingdom, being instruments of his love wherever you go. And God is calling you today to a work that is fulfilling and life-giving. God really cares about those who feel like they have no purpose. In the parable that Jesus gives of the workers in the vineyard, if the landowner is a picture of God, then we can see here that God is not to be found in the temple, in the holy place, in the worshiping place, but God is in the marketplace. God is in the workplace. And it's here that he is doing one thing. He is looking for people that are overlooked. People that are passed by. And he calls them to work with him. Jesus has a place for you to work in the vineyard. No one else is just like you. You have a unique place in God's work. In our world, there are times when work loses value. Some of you might feel like you're in a workplace that does not recognize you or appreciate you, and your work actually feels useless. But this is not so with Jesus. The greatest affirmation that we receive is this promise. In 1 Corinthians 15, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do all of your work, all of it ultimately for Jesus, and he will bless your servant heart. And he will make something beautiful of it. That is the promise that God is giving to us about work. Because what I want to come back to is thinking about the gift of work. Did you notice that, that, that the workers, some of the workers are complaining about having to do the work during the whole of the day and only get the same pay? But maybe, what if we just turn the story around for a moment? Just maybe in this story, the work is also the joy. That being called to the mission of being disciples and making disciples 
is the greatest task that we can ever take on and that we can be God's servants working in the vineyard wherever we are to take that task on. So what's another observation? I, I wanted to talk about that, that gift of, of work, but another observation as I think about this is this. Secondly, God is concerned about far more than giving me what I deserve. Is God fair? Is this story good news? Or does it, leaving, does it leave us with a nagging sense that I am owed more? Philip Yancey, as he was reflecting on that, he said, is, is God's grace wonderful or is it absolutely infuriating? Over the past few years, there have been a few people in our church um, where you ask them, how are you doing? Or how are things going for you? How are you doing? And you know the answer that a few of our friends would give. They give us the answer, Better than I deserve. It's a beautiful answer, isn't it? It's based on Psalm 103, verse 10, where the psalmist here, even pre-Jesus, before we get to the gospel, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Really, though, if, if you think of this story, how would you feel if you were hired, how, if you were hired last in the day, but you still got a denarius? I think that a lot of us struggle with the story because we don't read the parable and say, oh, I'm the person who showed up late. I'm the person who arrived early. I've been working for a long time. But the truth is, we are all 11th hour Christians. I think in a sense, we all are. We are all people who have showed up late. None of us can ever say, I have been working long enough in this vineyard, God, that you have to give me what I deserve, and I am going to receive an amazing reward. We can never work long enough in the field to say, I just want my rights. None of us can say, I deserve a better reward. And none of us can say, I have worked hard enough and good enough. God rewards us according to his generosity, not according to our accomplishments. When you think of your life, though, what do you... What do you want? Do you want what you deserve? Or do you want mercy and grace? The Bible has real warning notes that urge us, uh, like in the book of Hebrews, don't miss out on the grace of God. It, it's almost such a warning that I, I wonder if there is a way in which in the end, we can reject grace because we think we want something better. I think because maybe we, we think it's not fair. Let me say this. God's grace is always getting what we do not deserve. 
God's grace actually upends karma. In in an interview with Bono um, some years ago, he said this, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes. And then he said, but I am holding out for grace. I am holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And now I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. I think the whole reason why I'm telling you the story today is just, it comes back to this one thing is, I don't get tired of God's grace. And this is the message that helps me to hold on to Christ. And maybe more important than that, it's the message where Christ is holding on to me. And without this grace, I would feel so desperately lost. I know that. There's another point, though, or another application that just really strikes me as I think about this story, and it's this. God is concerned about far more than giving others what they deserve. And that's different than giving me. It's giving also others what they deserve. Now, what if you imagine, you know, the story now is like this. Imagine you picturing yourself as being somebody who is hired first. You're there at the beginning. And then you got the exact same pay as the late arrivals. This story really challenges us not to resent God's gracious work in the lives of others. Now think of these maybe simple ideas. Long-time Christians must never diminish the role of latecomers to faith. Or stronger growing churches can never look down on weaker churches. Or um, don't think less of people who are not yet in God's work or in God's vineyard. Wait for them to come into the vineyard because God is not yet finished calling all of his workers in. Jesus told this story precisely because he knows our temptation to keep score. He knows our propensity to grumble when other people get advantages that they don't deserve. Sometimes um, people try to judge God, right? Don't you hear that a lot? People are judging God. All the time. You hear these sentences. Maybe you say it. Maybe I'm saying it at times. How could a good and loving God allow bad things to happen? How many times do you hear that saying said? But in this parable, people are judging God, flipping it around, saying, God, how could you allow such good things to happen to these bad people? How could you allow such good things to happen to these people who have not worked as hard as I have, and you're giving them good things as well? Jesus reminds us that this grumbling against God's grace or God's unfairness destroys community. It wounds families and it fractures churches. 
it stops us from embracing others because we are now keeping score and measuring them not to be as good as us. The parable of Jesus is, this parable that Jesus told, I think is as close to the parable of the prodigal son where the older brother does not want to receive the younger brother. There's an old preacher's poem, an old poem. It it has old-fashioned language, but I think there's a point in it that ties in with what I want to say. It's a story of surprises, and it speaks of the power of verse 16 in our text, where the first will be last, and the last will be first. So let me read this strange poem to you. I dreamed death came to me one night, and heaven's gates flew open wide. With kindly grace, St. Peter came and ushered me inside. There, to my astonishment, were friends I had known on earth, some I had labeled as unfit, and some of little worth. Indignant words flew to my lips, words I could not set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. Do we get what we deserve? Well, we've talked about a few ideas from this parable. The gift of work, it's more than we deserve. God is concerned about far more than giving me what I deserve. And God is far more concerned about giving others than about giving others what they deserve. God wants to bless others as well. But this fourth point, just to wrap it up, I think is this. We get to be justice bringers. And to share the good news of more than we could ever deserve. Well, Sheila and I love watching murder mysteries. Sheila especially, picking on her, she loves the British murder mysteries. Where you would never imagine that such horrible murders would happen in quaint, picturesque villages. With such beautifully manicured lawns and gardens. The scenery is absolutely delightful. But something that we both love about this is that by the conclusion of the episode, the mystery is solved, the murderer is identified, and in the end, justice is done and things are put right. The Bible reminds us that we have a longing. All of us have a longing inside of us. It's wired inside of us. I think I'd say for us here, it's a part of our DNA that we have a desire for justice. God setting things right. That everything might be made right at last. We know well enough that things, we know this, don't we? Things aren't working quite right in our world. We look around whether it's national protests and vigils, where our hearts are broken at the world's pain. We just seem to see it so intently over 
over this past season, it, it, it just seems overwhelming at times when we follow the news. Or whether it's in family conflicts where individuals haven't really been talking with each other, not just for weeks or months, but, but it becomes years. We know that justice is important, but how can we ever get there? Will justice ever come? And one verse that has captivated me is Matthew 19:28. It's just a few verses before we get to this parable of the workers in the vineyard where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. One day, there will be justice. Isn't that amazing? One day there will be justice. All will be set right. And Jesus is looking forward to it. Not so much to the end of the world, but he is looking forward to the renewal of it, where things are made right once again. And in the midst of the mess and the waiting, we work and we trust God knowing that he is completely wise and knowing that he is completely trustworthy. We can count on him with what he does with his resources and what he does with his people. We can count on his timing. We know that he is good. And in order to bring justice and to set all things right and to give us what we do not deserve, Jesus must make his way to the cross. When he goes there, he enters squarely into the world of injustice where the bullies and the power brokers do what they want and get away with it. And on the cross, Jesus, who did no wrong, takes the injustice upon himself. When he went to the cross, he did not get what he deserved. When Jesus says in the parable, maybe just the last verse or the last idea that I just wanted to close on was Matthew chapter 20, verse 4. It's that curious little thought where, where the landowner, and I think it's God saying, I will pay you with whatever is right. And you think, it's going to be perfectly fair. It's going to be so measured. And he offers himself, not just what we deserve, but the life of Jesus himself given for us. And as God brings justice and grace, you and I get to come into this world and to say we get to be those bringers of justice and grace as well. Can you think of a message that is more important for our community today? Can you think of a message, a better message to bring to our world or to our church or to our friends as we think of a community that is weary and worn down? 
Do we get what we deserve? Praise God that he gives us far more than we could ever deserve. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we we thank you for these holy moments. We thank you that we get to meet here with you and to explore a parable that just turns us completely upside down and that turns the world upside down. But in it, we also get a picture of the cross and we get a picture of the mystery of Jesus and his love for us. Lord, we, we realize that in this world that we live, that there are very real consequences to our actions. And Lord, you don't negate that. You don't push that away. But then you offer something far more majestic, far more amazing. Lord, this word called grace that we want to explore and go deeper in understanding more and more of. So even as we sing and even as we go into this day and even as we go into this week, may we stand more and more in awe of your wonderful love for us, this gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.